The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Please let me say to begin with again what an honor and privilege it is of mine to be here with you all. There are many more faces here this hour than there were last, but I'm not scared. I'll try to deal with that. I appreciated that invitation to be here. When James contacted me back three to four months ago, I guess it was, and asked me to be with you, I think he told me a little bit about what's going on. If he explained it correctly, or I heard it correctly more so, he said that on the fifth Sundays you tend to have a guest speaker to come in. And I think that's a very good thing. I guess that gives you about four times a year, maybe once a quarter, I guess, uh, to have a guest speaker to come in. And I think that's a wonderful thing. You not only get to hear a different perspective, just a different person and such, some different personality perhaps to come in, that's good. And you get to, uh, not to measure your preacher necessarily, but to measure God's word against uh, different people and uh, let them let you see how they all can find the same thing in the same book and those things are in agreement because they are from the same source. And uh, James told me that much about it, but I have come to know or at least assume that this is something, if you want to call it a tradition, that must have been going on for a long, 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 long time. And I say that because in order for James to get down the list of preachers' names he knows to mine, it would have to be going on a long, long, long time. I may be the very last. I hope that you won't give up, that you'll start the list over. But I guess I may have been near the bottom of that, but I do. I love and appreciate James, and of course he loves and appreciates you. He told me a good bit about you all before getting here. And then the times I've been with him in the past, the last few months, as a matter of fact, he's held several gospel meetings back in his home area, or what I thought was his home area. And so I got to see him then and spend some more time with him most recently. And he sends his love, I know, and he appreciates you all very, very much. And I just hope that you all realize, and I'm speaking not for him, but because of him, uh, I hope you all realize what you got. Uh, James is certainly a gem. Uh, not, not like that. I'm J-I-M, not that. G-E-M. Uh, certainly a gem among preachers. He's certainly got a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge, and he's one of those that I pick up the phone and call often when I have a question about the Bible or about a situation that I'm dealing with. And I know he's got a long, last, a long line of preachers, both his age and younger, who do much the same. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you don't mind, to the book of Acts. When you get there, go to Acts chapter 4. Again, that'll be Acts chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend some of our time today as we move through basically what would be full chap- two full chapters today. Um, while you're turning there, we, we tried at least, and I did not get anywhere near finished. I didn't hit top side or bottom uh, in the last hour, the Bible class hour, to talk a little bit about the foundational principles of obedience And I think that's so important, just to lay that foundation of what obedience is. And I said then our attitude about it, and I gave you all a quote that I hope many of you would remember or write down. And that is just to understand that obedience is not, in one sense, only a requirement to be met, but it must be a response to be maintained. Uh, Much like when I was a child, there are times when I was younger especially, the only reason I was obedient to my parents my mom and daddy, is because it wasn't a requirement. I knew that if I did not do, did not finish, did not accomplish what they asked, eventually I would pay a price and it would be made of leather. Some of you know what that means, some of you don't, unfortunately. But I would pay a price for that. 
And uh, so I became obedient in the beginning, I guess, simply because of that. There was a requirement that was laid out. I knew that requirement would come with consequences if not met, and I did that. And I don't think there's anything too terribly wrong about that from the perspective of God. You know, we are promised either heaven or hell, and hell being the more negative outcome, none of us want to be a part of that, so we're obedient. We just give ourselves over and we're obedient. We meet those requirements. But what a much better life it is when you and I can mature like I hopefully did with my parents and eventually that leather belt got wrapped back around my daddy where I thought it belonged to start with and uh, I began to respond and to maintain a response to their requirements and to obey them because I loved them and because I knew that they loved me. And that is the relationship that you and I must have when it comes to God. To respond to God and to maintain that response based on the fact that He first loved us. And that as we mentioned the last hour, His requirements are not grievous. His requirements are not something to be dreaded, but His requirements are simply something to be followed. And in one sense, even enjoyed. Because He is our guide. He is our master. And ultimately, He will be our Savior. And so I want you to notice with me today in moving toward the next step, that last hour, again, the foundational principles of obedience. I want to talk to you just for this hour about the full, the full power of obedience as well. The full power that can come with obedience. Because in Acts chapter 4 and 5, in a nutshell, and we're going to read quite a bit of it, but in Acts chapter 4 and 5, in a nutshell, basically what you have, and there are other things that come in and out, other accounts that are interwoven in this, but the majority of it covers just two people, two individuals, that is Peter and John, and their response to the requirement of God to preach the gospel. They were given a requirement by God, so they felt it, to go about and preach the gospel no matter the situation, no matter what was happening around them. They felt an urgency. They felt an immediacy. They felt an important part of their lives had to delve into the preaching of the gospel itself. Now, they have good biblical example for that. I don't want to go into this, but if you were to read Mark chapters 10 and 11, that's just two chapters, there are many that could give you the same. But in Mark chapters 10 and 11, Jesus himself preaches and teaches the fact that he needs to go and preach the gospel that he wanted himself to carry the gospel to every uh, inkling of a place in the world. He himself wanted to do what we might call his ministry, his service to mankind, not just to heal the sick, not just to cause the lame to walk, not just to open the eyes of the blind or the mouths of the dumb, and the, but to do that in order that they might see the God of heaven that he was on earth and particularly recognize the Father that stood or sat upon his throne to rule and reign over them. So in Acts chapter 4, let's just pick up the reading. Let me see. Let's pick it up. We're doing it for time's sake. And here's a disclaimer. You really need to mark this one down as well. I am actually dyslexic. So I actually do not read very well. I try to memorize as best I can. So if you see me skipping words or reversing words, I'm just doing that. That's why it's your responsibility to read along, okay? And uh, I don't, I don't, I'll take the correction. I don't need it because I know I'm going to mess up. That way we're on the same page. But in Acts chapter 4, let's begin for time the reading in verse number 13. Acts 4 and verse 13. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men and marveled 
that they had took knowledge of him that had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed and standing with them, that they could do nothing against it, that they commanded them to go aside of the council and conferred among them, among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed has been a notable miracle which if it done by them is manifest in all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, basically, every miracle is that way. Any true miracle that could be done, whether it's Peter and John or other of the apostles or Jesus as he was on earth or even in the Old Testament at times when some of those prophets were able to do so, miracles are undeniable. The term I would use in that is they are ungetoverable, basically. And so they're spreading the gospel while they're doing miracles, but they've not gotten to the point yet where we see them doing that even more explicitly. But keep reading with, with this same reading here. Beginning in verse 13, we're now about to verse... Uh, 17, but it was spread no farther among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they may speak henceforth no more in this name. You can mark that. Let us straightly threaten them that they will speak no more in this name. What is their response? Verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in thy sight of God to hearken unto you more than God judge ye. But we, verse 20, we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so when they had gone, when they had farther threatened them, verse 21, they let them go, finding nothing of how they might punish them, because for the people, for all men glorify God in that which was done. And so the first part of this just kind of kicks off, and this is really building up, setting the table before we feast on it. The first part of this says, number one, these men could do miracles. Those miracles were important. Those miracles were impressive. But more than that, these men preached the Word of God. The Word itself was powerful. The Word of God had potential, and there was no stopping them. Their quoting of their own words was this again, that we cannot help but speak the things, verse 20, which we have seen and heard. Now what happens in the context, and you'll have to read on through this throughout the rest of the chapter, you see that they were speaking with boldness against these people, or speaking the word of God with boldness. Verse 31, we'll read it. And when they had prayed in this place, was shaken, and they assembled together, that they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Drop down to verse 34. And neither was there any that lacked, for many were possessors of land, having sold them, brought them to the place, and they were sold. And we were introduced to a man by the name of Barnabas. Then the next chapter, chapter 5, which really should blend straight into chapter 4, Ananias and Sapphira come in. They lie against what Peter called the Holy Spirit. And then Peter hits the road again to preach. All throughout this, here's what Peter does. Verse 17. And then the high priest rose up, verse 17 of 5, I should say. And the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, and the sect of the Sadducees were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in a common prison. And the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought forth them and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of life. Who might these men obey? Would they obey the men themselves from the preceding chapter who told them not to preach or speak? 
were to obey the magistrates, these hierarchies of even among the Jews who would tell them here basically not to preach or teach? Would they obey the angel that comes to them and releases them from prison who encourages them to preach and teach? You see, you got two sides. You got on the one hand, you've got men who discourage them from preaching. You've got others who encourage them from preaching. On the one side, they're being called to disobedience. On the other side, they're being called to obedience. What might be their choice? Skip over a bit farther into chapter 5 and begin now reading chapter 5. And uh, let's see, let's pick up in about verse number 25. And then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men which you have put in prison are now standing in the temple preaching the people. And when the captain with the officers brought them without, uh, brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest that they should have been stoned. And they, when they had brought them, set them before the council. So already people had threatened them before. And the high priest and asked, saying, Did we not, key word, straightly command you? that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you had filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Now, if you want to put scriptural reference out beside verse 29, you can easily put chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Because although they worded it a little bit differently, they're saying the same thing. We're going to do what God says above and over anyone else. It's undeniable. We cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now my question in this, and it's the way we're going to begin our illustration of such as we read through the rest of this text in chapter 5 of Acts is what would our action be? Or what, better yet, I might even ask, what is it? Forget what it may be. Forget what it was. Ask the question, what is it? If I were pressed this morning to be obedient to God in this one area that's being focused on in these two chapters, and that is we might call it to share the gospel or to preach the gospel or to teach the gospel to my neighbor, am I doing it? Not will I do it. But am I doing it? And if the am I'm doing it is no, then the will I do it had better turn yes. Pretty simple. Let's think about some of this stuff. Number one, I want you to consider with me, and we'll gain this from the text as we go through, what was their motivation for obedience? What motivated these men? Why was it that Peter and John, and even here listed the apostles themselves as a whole, why would they be willing to preach in his name? Why would they be willing to go against the instructions and the commands of men themselves who said, do not preach or teach in this name again, who had thrown them into prison already for that, threatened to beat them with many stripes, done all sorts of things which could have easily included death eventually? Why did they continue to go back? And we find them on two to three occasions within two chapters, not in any place, but in only one place, and that is right back smack dab in the middle of the temple. There are a few reasons for it. Number one, let's reconsider what we just read there in verse 29. For Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than men. What are they saying? 
When we consider the reasons for obedience, or in this case, I would call it the motivation for obedience, the very first principle that stands out to me is this. They knew there was a duty to be performed. They knew there was a duty to be performed. They knew that it was their, I hate to call it this, their job, their career, their duty. It was exactly what they had to do. Now, I, I, I can tell you about many times in my life, I can't speak for yours, but there are many times in my life when the opportunity arises, apart from some Sunday morning when I get to stand behind a pulpit, when I could teach someone the gospel, at least could lead someone in that direction, and I just don't fulfill my duty. I don't perform my duty. I don't do well with that. What's wrong with that? Everything. We'll go to schools, we'll go to jobs, we'll go out in the communities, we'll go into every place pretty much in life and do exactly what we are asked to do, in many cases, like it or not. And then in one case like this one, many times fail to fulfill the duty that ought to be performed, and that is to simply tell others about my God. To instruct others in the way of life. To be an evangelist, to be in one sense a Christian missionary. Not in foreign lands, but in the streets that I live in. To do what God says. Why obey God? There's a duty to be performed. That's the way they presented it. We cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard in the previous chapter. We must obey God rather than men. Number next. Not only is one of those motivations that, but the secondary motivation is found right here in the same context going into verse 30, and you learn there's a deity, that is a God, a deity, to be preferred. You see, they say, okay, men are the ones telling us not to preach, but we prefer to serve the God, the deity of heaven, who tells us to preach. Verse 30, the reading goes on. For, our, for thee, God, our fathers have raised Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with a right hand to be the prince and the savior to give repentance and forgiveness to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's God who does it. You know, I, I'm oftentimes motivated in my life. I'm using the word motivated, instructed, uh, commanded, whatever by my wife. I love my wife Jennifer. She wasn't able to come. We got a lot of kids at home and it was easier for me to go by myself. So I'm here. But if you were to meet my wife, Jennifer, you would already see her to be a loving, compassionate person. We've been together, well, 28 years, 28 and a half years. We've been together 25, married at least. And I will do nearly anything for her. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when my little ones come around the house, there I've got some that we've adopted that are 8, 7, and 6 years old we've had from birth. And they would come around a lot of times through the years and they would say, Daddy, why are you doing that? Because your mama told me to. That's the only answer I got. Well, can't you do this? No, I can't because I'm doing what your mama said today. I'm going to tell you what. I will do anything for her unless God tells me to do something different. There's a deity to be preferred. Number three, not only a duty to be performed, there's a deity to be preferred I can kind of see in the context, and it's certainly there, there's a debt to be paid. That again is verse 30 and 31. He just got through telling us that this Savior, Jesus Christ, He's been exalted. He is here to be, quote, verse 31, to give repentance 
to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. I obey God because I'm indebted to do so. I obey God because He has paid a debt for me already that I cannot repay. Who would do that? Better question, who would be able to do that? Say Jesus. Not one. You see, these men and their obedience to God was based upon some of these things. Number, number next, keep up the reading. I read verse 31, let's read verse 32. And we were witnesses of these things, so also the Holy Ghost, and so also these things, and so also the Holy Ghost, of whom God hath given them to obey Him. His decisions are being made. Verse 33, And when we heard this, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Why would they obey God? In this instance, they do it because they had to practice their decisions. You know, they had already seen their duty that was to be performed. They had already seen the, the deity that was to be preferred. They had already seen the debt that was to be paid. And now there was a decision that had to be practiced. Somebody says, well, wait a minute. What was the, what was the punishment there? Well, preceding chapter, they had been thrown into prison. Best case scenario, this chapter, they're going to be beaten and or thrown into prison. Worst case scenario that's even threatened of them here in verse 33 is it says they were so mad they were about to put them to death. But what did they do with that? These men simply stood up and stood out and said, we will preach anyway. We will obey God, preceding verses, 29, rather than that of man. Is that my perspective? You know, in the contrast of that phrase I keep repeating and, and the idea, the contrast of whether or not I obey God because it is a requirement to be met or in that sense a response to be maintained, where would I fall? If given the option, if given the scenario that they were where my life could be uh, ended, where I could be murdered, could be killed based upon my willingness to obey God rather than man, which way would I turn? You see, in this case right here, what they are doing is they are doing the very will of God. The will of men has been expressed. The context in three to four occasions in two chapters, the men just say, hey, look, all you've got to do, it's real simple. It's real simple. Just keep this to yourself. Go on about your way. Go to some other town. Go on over to some other city. Just don't bother us with this stuff because you're spreading it all over Jerusalem. There are too many people who are believing what you say. You're nothing but a bunch of ignorant, unlearned men. So just simply use the only smarts that you have and go somewhere else and keep this to yourself. How many times can you, if you're a child of God's and you're one who is willing to teach, willing to preach from whatever perspective, Say for your co-workers, for your neighbors, for your classmates, whatever. How many times have you been basically told, in a nutshell, if not verbally, but at least in the look on their face, just take this stuff and go somewhere else? We've got a neighbor that lives up behind us. He's over to the left. If I'm standing, well, looking at my house, he's to the right and he's on the hill. 
We've been to his house over and over and over again. We've taken gifts. We've taken invitations to join us for different events, if you want to call it that, gospel meetings and, and special days and friends and family days and homecomings. And you know, we've taken him stuff every time. And our conversation has always started and ended on the same thing. He will literally say, keep this to yourself. I do not want it. Would I knock on his door tomorrow? I'd be hesitant. Do I get excited about having that same conversation again and again and again? No, I do not. Will I obey him or God? I'll keep trying. God's will must be done. Somebody says, well, you know what, Jim, if it's God's will, I'm using that one individual for an example. If it's God's will that that man be saved, so be it. God's will will be done. Don't, don't, don't worry yourself over that. Don't, don't be concerned about him. His, he'll answer for his own soul. Some of it, true statements, true statements, true statements. I'm going to tell you what, God's will is not always done by men. Sometimes men say no. Oftentimes men refuse. But in this case, we have the motivation that is given for obedience. Number next. Looking a little bit farther in the text, we can learn a little bit more and really learn some things that I would typically overlook. And that's not just the motivation for obedience could be seen, but also I would say the qualifications of obedience are seen in the text. Between chapters 4 and 5, we find many qualifications for obedience that ought to exist. For example, go back in chapter 4. Go back and look with me in chapter 4 and verse number 20. I've referenced this. I've quoted part of this several different times. Romans chapter, I'm not Romans. Acts chapter 4 and verse 20 says, For God, for we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What is this? One of the qualifications for obedience is that it must be informed obedience. James Rogers liked to alliterate. He learned it from a cousin of mine, probably, but we all do. It must be informed obedience. You see, you can't obey what you don't know. All these men just said there in that verse is, we cannot help the thing, but speak the things which we have seen and heard. What do they mean? The things which we've learned. We are just repeating, we are just regurgitating what we have already known. You know, that's all we do as Christians. If we, if we treat God's Word with respect and honor and we rightly divide that Word and we use it the way it ought to be, the way that we deal with people and trying to teach them the Word of God is simply that we take our Bibles that are typically leather-bound with some kind of thin uh, white paper. This one happens to be yellow and black because it's a little bit older. Uh, but we take those Bibles out, we open them up, and we simply have them or us together. We read what God has said. And when we use that in our lives to be obedient, that obedience has to be informed obedience. Why? Because if it is misinformed, I will not obey right. 
You know, we would teach, because the Bible does, we would teach in order for a person to actually be saved, and I mean the fullness of it, having done all things that are required, the pinnacle moment of that that some would disagree with was we would say, well, the Bible teaches in order to obtain salvation, one must be baptized. Where do we know that? We're informed by the Word of God that is true. What if someone says, no, that is not necessary at all? Baptism is not for salvation itself. It's something that you do as an outward showing of your inward faith just to prove that you have already been saved. What's wrong with that? They have information. We have information. The truth comes from here. The misinformation comes from there. Number one, it must be informed obedience. That's what they said. Number two... Not only must it be informed obedience, it must be intentional. Go back to chapter 5 this time and look at verse 21 of chapter 5. Here's what it said. We didn't read across all this a moment ago, but right behind the this, this part of verse 20 where it says, Go and stand and speak in the temple and the people and all the words. Verse 21 says, And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught, but the high priest... And they that were with them called on the council together and the sending of the children of Israel and sent into the prison to have them to be brought. You see how intentional this was? When they were told not to speak, preceding chapter and leading into this one, when they were instructed not to, not to preach the words of life, the word of God, the gospel, they went straight to the temple. Do you think these men, meaning by that Peter and John and the others of the eleven that may have been there, do you think that these men knew walking into that temple what the outcome very well could be? Not only are they going to the same place to which they have been commanded not to speak, they're probably at this time frame, and I don't see it being a long span of time, it's probably 24 hours or less, they're going in to speak to probably the same people. Why was it the tradition of the apostles oftentimes? Now, we're under New Testament times right now. Jesus has already been, been killed on a cross or hung on a cross, died, been buried or resurrected and ascended to heaven. The new covenant, the, the church itself has been established according to Acts chapter 2. We're two chapters removed, just a few minutes removed, it feels like, from that having occurred. Why would they go into the temple to preach? Were not the temple still being used for Old Testament Worship under the law of Moses by many. Matter of fact, by most. But they were populated with people who already knew God was God. And so they went there. It was expedient. It was convenient. It was not easy to do, but it's what must be done. They were there. They were, in that case, intentional they weren't going in there looking for a different group who would not recognize their faces, who would not know that they were not supposed to be there. They knew who they would see, they knew who they would meet, and they went anyway. How does that apply to us? Well, it applies in the case that once our obedience becomes informed, then we've got to set our minds right now to say, I will do it no matter what. You know, one of the examples we didn't get to in the last hour, we were going to talk about the account of three Hebrew youths known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
We're going to talk about from Daniel chapter 3, how to, among those three Hebrew youths, as they were being basically about to be thrown in the fiery furnace of Nebuchadnezzar because they had refused to bow down to his golden statue. In the context, what they said is, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We shall not bow down to the golden image which thou hast set up. You know what they did? Intentional. Number next. Not only must it be informed and intentional, it must be immediate. And that seems to be what, what takes place here. In Acts chapter 5, verse 21, you see the same thing. Drop down to verse 27, and it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest said to them, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles said, answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. They didn't take time. They didn't beat around the bush. They didn't do what I would have done, which is say, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just go lay low for a while. Kind of, kind of drop the issue. We'll come back in, in two days or two months or maybe two years whenever we get up the courage and we'll be back and we'll preach then. Didn't do it. Didn't do it. I mentioned Mark chapter 1 a few moments ago. Let's go to Mark chapter 1. Probably not ideal but I don't want you to miss this Mark chapter 1 and this is not speaking about uh, Peter and John and the apostles this is speaking about our Lord himself Mark chapter 1 uh, I want to notice with you a word it's one we just mentioned the word immediate and words similar to it Mark chapter 1 for example in verse 10 and straightway verse 12 and immediately verse 18 straightway verse 20 straightway Verse 21, straightway. Verse 28, immediately. Verse 30, anon, which anon means to move immediately with happiness or with joy. Verse 31, immediately. Verse number 40, um, I believe it was in 40, was one of them. Again, uh, 42, I'm sorry, immediately. And then you drop down into chapter 2, which is Jesus healing a man who was lame from birth. And it says he immediately did so in verse 8. What example, what, what, where would the idea of doing something immediately or urgently, urgently, urgently have come from? I would suggest for Peter and John it came from the example of our Lord. Verse 38 of Mark 1 says, And he said, that's Jesus, so let us go into the next town that I may preach also there. And they came forth, and he preached in all the synagogues throughout all of Galilee and cast out devils or demons. That's what Jesus did. So back in our context, and we'll have to move very quickly now. In Acts chapters 4 and 5, combining the two, their obedience also had to be inflexible. It couldn't be one that was kind of, as we would say, at least in Munford, we would say where they were lollygagging around. It couldn't be one where they said, okay, we'll, we'll do this. 
in its own time, in its own place. You know, we'll obey God, but it's not a good idea to go back to the synagogue right now. It's certainly not an idea, a good idea to go back today. So what we're going to do, there's a dear sister down the road already, and uh, she's already a Christian. We baptized her X number of days ago, so we'll go down to her house. I'm sure she'll feed us well, and if anybody happens to pass by, you know, and want to come in, then we'll preach to them. We'll, we'll, we'll teach them about God because that'll be a lot easier. And if, and if the church will gather in one place, then that'll be wonderful. And I'm not saying it's not. It's wonderful to be here this morning. We'll, we'll preach to them because it's so much easier. They were inflexible. Verse 33 describes that. And therefore being by the right hand, I'm in the wrong chapter, so it won't do it there. <laughs> Verse 33 of chapter 5, I'm sorry. And when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Wouldn't it have been easy to also have the conversation among those that said, look, man, I was fine with going to jail for the night. I was even okay with the fact that the food tasted nasty. But if they're going to kill us, I'm out. Now, granted, at this point in our lives, right here in Cookville, Tennessee, I would not expect our lives to be in literal, physical danger for being here. It doesn't mean it always has to be that case. But even if it never were, the fact that our spiritual lives are in danger for being here is always the case. Several years ago, I got very, very frustrated with just, I guess, everything in life. And I've been preaching a little congregation that was in uh, actually Clarksville, Tennessee. I don't know how far Clarksville is. I didn't check the map, but preaching it there. And I was on my way that Sunday to sit down with the elders and announce my resignation. Frustration had taken over. It was hard. I was driving four and a half hours one way to preach there every single weekend, and I was tired. And as I was on my way, I stopped off at a little lectureship that was up in Cadiz, Kentucky. This has nothing to do with where it was, but that's where it was. And one of my instructors at that time in the Memphis School of Preaching, he walked up behind me. He reached and grabbed me on the shoulder. Don't know why he said it. Didn't, didn't know why he said it. I do now. He said, if you let him win, he will. Don't quit. Now, I'd had no conversation with him about what I intended to do the very next day. But I know this. You can't be flexible. You must obey God in spite of what the outcome could be. Last one here, and we'll close. Not only when I see these qualifications of obedience must it be informed must it be as well intentional and immediate and inflexible it must be impassioned don't obey God with a half heart don't go into the fields of this this land and, and the idea with a mindset that I'm just going to obey God because he said so and you know 
at least I've got a great church family, you know, the congregation I worship with. We're all just trying to do our best. And so we'll, we'll pool our efforts. And as long as the next guy next to me is doing what he was commanded to do, then I guess I can do it myself. And if sister so-and-so can do it, maybe I can. And, and I'll, I'll just do whatever. You know, I'm not going to like it. Our obedience must be impassioned. Verse 41, chapter 5. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing in that they were counted worthy, watch this, to suffer shame for his name. That's it. Why be obedient? Why in the world would I choose in that case to be obedient to God even if it may cost me everything. Again, not to re-reel through it all, but because of the duty, the deity, the debt, the decision that I make. How in the world would I go about doing so? To have the right mindset, the right attitude, the right forewithal to be informed, to be intentional, to be immediate, and in this case to be inflexible and even impassioned about what I do? Because God deserves it. That is a part of the motivation and the qualifications for obedience. Go and take your song books out if you'd like. I want to let you know that there are also, there's compensation for obedience. You know this already. When we do, when I do, when you do the will of God, his promise to us is to reward us with heaven. Now certainly that involves so many things. It involves so much leading it up. One, having a full faith in Jesus, knowing that Jesus who he said he was, that the word of God is true and is right and can be followed and can be our guide. To be willing to repent, to turn our lives away from what would be the normal, typical life of most citizens of this land and, and to turn away from that, but not just away from that to be a good moral person, but turn toward God to have all His guidance and all His wisdom and knowledge available to use. To be willing to confess His name. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely positive, although not explicitly stated in so many words, I'm absolutely sure that every a group to which they spoke in those synagogues and those temples, they walked in the door and said, I for one believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And because of that, I tell you blank. Even when they healed people. Even when Peter and John and others healed people, they turned around and said, not us, it's Him. He gets the blame because He gets the glory. To be willing to be baptized. By this day and time, I mean by that, the time frame around Acts chapter 4 and 5 and following and such, any time past Acts 2, the requirement of those people ultimately came down to what Peter himself had uttered in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 when they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 37, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, that is by his authority, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You'll be saved for that. The context tells us that many were added to the church on that day, 3,000 souls specifically. Why did that occur? Obedience. Better explain faithful obedience is what this was. 
Friends, there's power in obedience. And the great power that exists in obedience is the initial power for you and I to be saved from our sins as just described by that pattern, by that plan. But more than that, and for most of you, I can just assume, I'll only assume you, you're more like I am. You've taken care of that initial obedience. You've obeyed God in your past in a certain way by obeying what we just laid out, including being baptized for the washing away, the remission of your sins by contacting that blood, Revelation 1 and verse 5. But then there's life. And then there's what we have to do and live life. And we have to live it in faithful obedience as well. If you, like I or some, have fallen short in that, and honestly have lost sight too many times to count of what a duty we have before God to be aware of the debt and the deliverance that he made possible. Opportunity is always available. We make it specifically available and convenient this morning to come home to God through prayer and repentance or if not gotten that far, to be baptized for the remission of your sins as you confess his name. The invitation is yours this morning while together we stand and while we sing.